Some motorcycle tracks, the broken handle of a 22 pistol, and a green fleece vest with a bloodstain were the last signs of Mike Rust. They were found after he disappeared from his home in southern Colorado's San Luis Valley on March 31, 2009. Six weeks later, his motorcycle was discovered in a canyon 20 miles away. Since that time, until a month and a half ago, we had had no news whatsoever. Marty Rust spent the next seven years searching for his brother in the sparsely populated high desert valley the size of Connecticut. He turned every stone, walked every gully, banged on doors, offered rewards, and even followed up on far-fetched tips from self-proclaimed psychics. Nothing. Everything was cold. Then, in early January 2016, the Swatch County Sheriff's Department received an anonymous phone call. I can tell you that a tip led us to check an area um, that was between Highway 17 and Highway 285 within Swatch County. There, says Sheriff Dan Warwick, they found a shallow grave on private property just a few miles east of Mike Rust's home. The sheriff was able to obtain a search warrant, and they found a body. We're waiting for the DNA confirmation right now. This is Wish We Were Here, Tales and Investigations from the Shadows of America's Mountain. I'm Noel Black. And I'm Jake Brownell. On this episode, we tell the story of Mike Rust, a Hall of Fame mountain biker and pioneer of the sport whose mysterious disappearance has haunted and vexed an entire region for the better part of a decade. This episode of Wish We Were Here is an adaptation of the documentary film The Rider and the Wolf, produced by Grit and Thistle Film Company. Grit and Thistle creates documentaries about environmental and social causes in the American West. Most of the interviews you'll hear in this episode are from the film and were provided to us by director Nathan Ward. In a garage in central Colorado Springs, Marty Rust keeps a memorial to his brother Mike. This is my private Mike museum. Marty brought us here to show us a mountain bike. You can find mountain bikes in almost any garage in Colorado now, but this one is special. Hand-built in 1986, this bike, which looks like a compact X with wheels on either side, was quietly revolutionary. Mike Rust called it the shorty. All the traction is on the back wheel, and so this is the best climbing mountain bike in the world, there's no question. It's a goat. This bike, along with Mike's many other early contributions to the sport of mountain biking, eventually led to his induction to the Mountain Bike Hall of Fame in 1991. Actual plaque given to him by the Hall of Fame, 1991 inductee. Mycicle. As uh, his name was actually dubbed him Mycicle, which is pretty cool that they gave him a special name and everything else. Mycicle, Mike the Bike, Bike Mike. He was a larger-than-life figure in the early Colorado mountain bike scene, and he earned his nicknames as a first-rate mechanic, an inventive designer, and a tireless rider on the rugged trails and mountain passes around Colorado Springs, Crested Butte, and Salida. Long before the advent of bikes with shocks, disc brakes, and carbon fiber frames, Mike Rust was helping to define the fledgling sport. Mike had a lot of influence in mountain biking. This is Don Cook, former co-director of the Mountain Bike Hall of Fame in Crested Butte before it moved to California. He was there in the early days, when Mike Rust was modifying old bikes, designing new ones, and helping to shape the culture and ethic of the sport. According to Cook, despite Mike's contributions to mountain biking, his legacy had been mostly forgotten by the time he died in 2009. 
His influence is a lot greater than people think, and yet he is, he is a nobody name in the world or the sport of mountain biking, unfortunately. In 1995, just four years after he was inducted into the Mountain Bike Hall of Fame, Mike Rust retreated from the sport he'd helped create to a treeless, windswept property overlooking the San Luis Valley. He built an off-the-grid cabin by hand out of recycled materials and strove to live a life of simplicity and self-sufficiency amidst the austere beauty of the valley. It was a move that many in his life viewed as an extreme act of renunciation. But Mike had always been a man of extremes, and sometimes contradictory ones. My mother uh, has an Irish background. Her uh, father's name was Massey. He was uh, a, uh, an orphan. So we're really not quite sure where his background came from. But on, on uh, um, grandmother's side, um, she definitely hailed from uh, a town outside of Belfast, Northern Ireland. This is Carl Rust, Mike's oldest brother. So yeah, we have some Irish heritage, and then we mix that with my dad's side, which was Swiss and German. So, uh, you know, we can uh, we be hard on some things and uh, have a good time on the Irish side. So we kind of, I don't know whether that makes us mixed up or what. <laughs> so. Mike was the fourth of seven children, six boys and one girl raised in a military family in Colorado Springs. He was close with his siblings, but even so, he stood apart at a young age. Here's his younger sister, Annie. Mike was just wonderful at coming up with new things, new ways to do something, new ideas on how to do things. From early on, he was just inventive, and, and it showed all the way through his life. Here's Carl Rust. Mike liked to take stuff apart. I think he took more stuff apart than the rest of us did. All of us kind of had a flair for that sort of thing. Bicycles, or, or uh, eventually with Mike, it was motorcycles and that kind of thing. And um, so he, he, was, he would always take something completely apart and then rebuild it just to, to understand how it was done. Marty Rust, the youngest sibling, remembers Mike and their brother Joe's particular talent for repurposing anything mechanical. You just couldn't punish people like my brother Joe or Mike, either one. They, uh, you know, I remember uh, many times they'd be, do something wrong and mom would send them to their room and, and you know, hours would go by, they'd be quiet and uh, they wouldn't come out of the room and my mom would be so curious, eventually she'd go to find out what's going on in there and they were perfectly happy in there inventing something new. You know, uh, one time, uh, one of them, uh, my mom in there to, went in there to find out what they were doing and they had taken their train set apart and hooked up the transformer to the curtain rod and made, with the throttle control, he could make his curtains close and open, you know, and, and just, so that was punishment for these guys, you know, They're just constantly making and building everything. Mike, in particular, says Marty, had a penchant for trying to improve and perfect everything. He was always a little bit different one and, and uh, and just outside the circles of everybody, he would he could make stuff smoother and better than anyone, and faster. And you know, he taught us all about how to how to make a bicycle run real efficient. And then it would pass on to every other thing in your life about how to be more efficient with water. Or you know, uh, he taught us a lot about just coexisting. You know, either with other people or the environment, and uh, he was real good at it. It wasn't just about nuts, bolts, and gears for Mike. He looked for efficiencies in everything. And as he got older, efficiency became a central part of his moral code. In his teenage years, Mike took a keen interest in motorcycles. 
He worked in a garage with some friends in Colorado Springs and loved the mechanics of motorcycle engines. But by the time he graduated from high school, he'd begun to turn to bicycles as a cleaner, more efficient vehicle that dovetailed with his nascent environmental awareness. Here's his sister, Annie. His locomotion became his legs instead of uh, internal combustion. And he got me to ride a 10-speed, which I never had been interested in before. I, when I was a kid, I had a Stingray bicycle, and that was fun, but it had been years since I'd ridden a bicycle, and I looked at it more as a chore instead of a sport or something that was fun to do. And Mike definitely made it fun. Mike was a teacher by nature, and he felt compelled to share his ideas and designs. And as he began to experiment with bicycles in his late teenage years, his family and friends reaped the benefits. He built for me a Peugeot my bicycle, Peugeot frame, and he put the lightest weight alloy components that he could possibly find at the time, and I'm sure that he created some in his own machine shop. And I could pick that bike up with about two fingers. It was, it was super lightweight. He had these fancy slick racing tires on it. It was a beautiful burgundy color and shiny paint, and I was really proud to ride that bicycle. Mike rode bikes everywhere and made friends along the way. Brian Gravestock, a longtime friend and fellow cyclist, remembers the first time he encountered Mike on a bike ride at the base of Pikes Peak. The first time I met Mike, um, he was riding a uh, old converted Schwinn, and um, I was in Manitou climbing um, Rexton, which is a pretty steep grade, on a uh, racing bicycle. And he um, actually caught up to us and um, basically was just kind of delighting in the whole experience of um, being on this old newspaper bike that um, he was going to ride off-road. As soon as Mike got into bikes, he started modifying them and pushing the limits of what kinds of rides were possible. This was the mid-70s. At the time, bikes came in one of a few styles. There were road bikes with thin tires, 10-speed derailleurs, and efficient geometry. There were banana seat cruisers, and then there were the so-called paperboy bikes. Comfy bikes with fat wheels and no pretense. At the time, bikes were built to be ridden in the street. But Mike wanted to do more. Here's Brian Gravestock again. He was explaining to us that he was going to ride Bar Trail, which at the time was completely unheard of, and um, we almost didn't believe that he was going to try to do that. Bar Trail is a steep gravel hiking trail that rises from the base of Pikes Peak in a long series of winding switchbacks. So we rode up there on our 10 speeds to the gravel part of the trail and then watched him right away and were totally amazed that, um, one, he could do it, and um, two, that it was just something that was so outside of the expectations because mountain bikes hadn't really been invented. Um, nobody would heard of them yet. And uh, here's his character. I think he was wearing a pork pie hat, didn't have any cycling gear on, and he was spanking us. That was something that Mike liked to do is um, really mess with people's expectations. Because at that time, um, those of us that rode bikes, we had an identity as bike riders and we would dress like for the role, you know, in tights and jerseys. And we wanted to look as much like a bike rider as we possibly could. And then uh, here's this, um, person that totally uh, broke that mold and yet was uh, obviously way more accomplished at bike riding than we were. Mike Rust wasn't the only one itching to take his bike into the backcountry. Off-road bike riding was in the air, and in 1980, Mike found himself in Crested Butte, Colorado, ground zero for what were called clunkers. Makeshift proto-mountain bikes converted from old paperboy bikes, just like the one Mike had built and rode on Bar Trail in 1975. 
Once a year, clunker aficionados would gather in Crested Butte to do the Pearl Pass ride to Aspen. Here's Neil Murdoch, the owner of Bicycles Etc., America's first dedicated mountain bike shop. This audio clip is from a documentary called Crested Butte to Aspen, Clunker Classic, produced by Dana Ashley. Uh, clunker is a, a balloon-powered bicycle. We have several of them here. It's essentially a, uh, an old newspaper boy bicycle that's been converted to use in the mountains. Mike Rust can be seen in the video on YouTube chugging up a hill on a clunker in tight shorts, an orange cycling jersey, and a big bushy beard. The Pearl Pass ride would quickly become a testing grounds for new gear and a place for riders to connect and prove themselves. Okay. This is the largest group that's ever going to camp on Pearl Pass, I think, so we got to be real careful with nature. Burn toilet paper, don't start the place on fire. Be very careful with the nature. Yeah, yeah, i got to disco up the mountains. Disco, huh? <laughs> what are you going to listen to? Huh? What are you going to listen to? The Rolling Stones, of course. <laughs> Gary Fisher, another early developer of Clunkers who went on to create a well-known brand of mountain bikes, came out from Marin County, California to ride Pearl Pass in those days. Fisher and a couple of friends heard about the ride through Stuart Brand's seminal hippie magazine of the time, the Whole Earth Catalog. And the first year we come out there, I mean, man, these guys are hardcore. But, and we camp out around 10,000 feet. And the second year, oh, about 50 people show up. And the third year, about 150 people show up. Until it fizzled out in the mid-1980s, Mike Rust was a regular on the Pearl Pass ride. He spent most of the year in Colorado Springs, but spent his summers in Crested Butte working for Neil Murdoch at Bicycles Etc. Mike was his mechanic, and uh, and he got well known for uh, being the master of the conversion. Uh, you know where you take an old cruiser and convert it for off road. This is Don McClung. Like Rust, Don was a mechanic and a tinkerer. The two had met in Colorado Springs in the late 1970s and bonded over a shared love of bikes and motorcycles. They both also liked to go fast, faster than the old conversion bikes could handle on the trails. Using what they both knew about the performance of off-road motorcycles, they began to play around with designs for a new kind of bike, with geometry and components specifically made for riding on trails. We came up with the shardy design, the elevated chainstay, on uh, just for you know, just fooling around with a sketch pad and just figured we were on to something and, uh, uh, you know, we about a month later, uh, we had the first prototype up and running. The shorty was agile and light with a more compact frame than anything else on the trails at the time. It was fast, climbed well, and could take hairpin turns at high speeds. A dream for guys like Don and Mike who took mountain biking seriously and wanted to push the limits of their own abilities. They figured they weren't the only ones who'd want a bike like the Shorty. So they decided to go into business together to set up shop and make more Shorties. But they needed a location, and they both felt it was time to leave Colorado Springs. We first looked at Cripple Creek, you know, because things were cheap in Cripple Creek. And of course, it was right in the neighborhood. We uh, found a place that was cheap and had a, a shed out back that we could work in. and the. Uh, approached the city council to see if it would work and all the neighbors objected to it. They didn't want, they didn't want a business in the neighborhood so they decided in Cripple Creek that, uh, that they didn't like us so the next place that uh, we looked at was Salida. 
Nestled in the mountains about 100 miles southwest of Colorado Springs, Salida was a sleepy former railroad and ranch town surrounded on all sides by BLM land, and it was cheap. People were so desperate to sell places here in town at that time that, uh, uh, you know, me and Mike, neither one had a job. Uh, I barely had enough cash to cover my half of the down payment, and uh, Mike had to borrow the money from his mom. And uh, we bought that building for $25,000. You know, it's probably worth 10 times that now. Don and Mike bought the storefront on E Street where they would open their business, Colorado Cyclery. The year was 1986, and they were the only mountain bikers in town. The only bikers of any kind, really. The only other people riding bikes in town were the DUI bike club, you know, the no driver's license. <laughs> I mean, they, we were, Mike and I were a bit of an oddity because the people used to point at us and say, those guys have got driver's licenses and they're riding bikes. <laughs> This is Wish We Were Here. Stay with us. This episode of Wish We Were Here is supported by the Hub Bicycle Shop in Colorado Springs. The Hub strives to be a socially conscious company and believes the bicycle contributes to personal, societal, and environmental well-being. Check them out at thehubbicycleshops.com. Welcome back to Wish We Were Here. I'm Noel Black. And I'm Jake Brownell. If you're just joining us, we're telling the story of the life and disappearance of Mike Rust, one of the early pioneers of mountain biking who went missing from his home in Colorado's San Luis Valley in 2009. This episode of Wish We Were Here is an adaptation of the documentary film The Rider and the Wolf, produced by Grit and Thistle Film Company. Grit and Thistle creates documentaries about environmental and social causes in the American West. Most of the interviews in this episode are from the film and they were provided to us by director Nathan Ward. In 1986, when Mike Rust and his business partner Don McClung moved to Salida to build mountain bikes, there was no mountain biking scene to speak of there. But it didn't take long for word to spread about what Mike and Don were up to in Salida. Kids in town started hanging around the shop, and riders from Crested Butte and beyond came to see the bikes and ride the trails that Don and Mike were making. A scene grew up around them. Here's Don McClung. Well, the early days were pretty fun. Uh, you know, we were the center of attention. We had uh, a, a bench out in front of the shop. There were mornings when I'd get up in the morning and uh, there'd already be, be uh, two or three people sitting down there on that bench drinking beer, <laughs> like at eight o'clock in the morning. Wade Vesey, who now owns his own mountain bike shop in Salida, remembers those days. He moved to Salida from Kansas in the late 1980s and quickly fell in with Mike and Don and the rest of the crew that congregated around Mike and Don's shop, the Colorado Cyclery. It wasn't a true commercial bike shop. It was more of like a bike factory. And there was always something going. Uh, it wasn't super polished. Uh, Mike lived upstairs. He was really into airplanes as well. So he had all of his RC airplanes and uh, the apartment and office was kind of upstairs and then the real fabrication was going on downstairs. As VZ remembers it, Don was the backroom machinist and Mike was the salesman. 
He always knew when Mike was around. He, uh, his personality filled the room for sure. <laughs> he, uh, he was definitely, like I said, the salesman, the upfront guy, and high wheeler extraordinaire. High wheelers, also known as ordinaries, tall bikes, or penny farthings, were the original bicycles. The bikes, with the distinctive large front wheel and small back wheel, were a hobby of Mike's and his brothers. Mike, in particular, was drawn to their simplicity and efficiency. There were no chains, no gears, just pedals on the large front wheel, a simple frame, handlebars, and a back wheel. One speed was all you got, and the tires were solid rubber. But in typical Rust Brother fashion, Mike and his siblings had to build their own. They built big jigs to curve the tubes, made all their own hub flanges, bearing holders, used forks off of old bikes for the rear end, bent their own backbones, and they weren't for looking at, they were for riding. Um, and Mike could ride them, he was, he was something else on this thing. The high wheelers were one of the main attractions of daily life out in front of the Colorado Cyclery. A favorite pastime was getting newcomers and tourists up on the bikes without telling them how to get off. Mike even took his high wheeler on one of the mountain bike trails near Salida on a dare. Boy, talk about some pedal strokes. That was, people were getting out of his way. When he was coming downhill, it was controlled chaos for sure. <laughs> it was, uh, that was something else. He didn't try the second time, though. That, uh, once was plenty of that. <laughs> In 1990, Mike and his brothers were invited by the Irish Tourism Board to ride their high-wheelers in the St. Patrick's Day Parade in Dublin. The Rolling Rust Brothers, they were called. Six Irish-American brothers in knickers, vests, and tweed driving caps on old-fashioned penny farthings. They were a hit. Here's Carl Rust. It was an awesome moment. It was really just quite the thing for a family to do, to be able to travel that far and do that. According to Mike's brother Paul, whether it was high wheelers or the shorty mountain bikes, Mike was always interested in looking to past innovations in bike technology first. My brother Mike had a famous quote uh, that he used to say all the time. It came from a Stuart Parker play, and uh, he quoted it all the time. He said that the, the bicycle has a great past ahead of it. And I've always, I've always uh, thought that was a great, and true, it does have a great past ahead of it. To Mike's mind, all bikes designed before the advent of paved roads had been mountain bikes. They had to have large wheels and tires to absorb the shocks of bumpy roads and short wheelbases to be able to move around obstacles and potholes quickly. The shorty, Mike and Don's signature bike at Colorado Cyclery, had simply adapted those old designs to the particular demands of mountain trails. The shorty bicycles were wonderful. They were way ahead of their time. The shorty was, by all accounts, an amazing bike. It climbed, handled, and rode better than anything else on the market at the time. But as Brian Gravestock explains, it didn't sell. It's, a, it's hard to put it into context, but um, a lot of what people know about is what has been marketable and what has been decided to market, not necessarily what is the best or what is good. And sometimes it gets um, down to production convenience and um, inability to produce a product in a affordable or meet a certain price point. Well, certain things just can't be done that way. You require more workmanship, more time, more expertise to execute. And uh, so thank goodness that there were people like Mike and Don that were exploring these limits. 
As mountain biking became increasingly popular, the mountain bike industry became more commercial. And Mike had no interest in being part of it. He loved mountain biking not just for the sport, but for what it represented. Freedom, self-reliance, efficiency, and an ethic of environmental responsibility. While some of the other pioneers in the sport were building companies and cashing in, Mike was moving in the opposite direction, deepening his commitment to the principles that attracted him to bikes in the first place. I really feel that there was a, an increasing disillusionment with our society and with um, the reality of the way that Americans live. Uh, he had a strong ecological bent and um, a strong sense that people don't need so much to have a good life. And um, he was very self-reliant. He had um, a philosophy. Here's Wade Vesey again. He took a lot of pride in hauling everything he could on his bikes. We, we had to carry sheetrock from the lumber yard by hand for blocks because he didn't want to start the car up. And the way he could see the way America was going, he thought America was getting lazy and he really liked to fight back with the bicycle. Mike's commitment to his principles came with a certain mystique. I wanted to be what Mike was. He was the best. He um, was the most skillful. He was the person, he was the elder statesman, only a few years older, but still, he had that special quality, of, kind of a star quality as a person, like a magnetism that people felt around him, not only handsome, but um, so assured of himself and just confident in everything about himself. Mike liked to impart his wisdom in quiet, unorthodox ways, often with the harsh humor of a Zen master. Like, for instance, um, if you were riding along and daydreaming, he might actually ride beside you and steer you right into the back of a parked car so that you would have to react. Um, now that sounds mean, but what the purpose behind it was, was to raise your awareness, to show you um, how craftiness could be used to gain an advantage. And um, there's so many things like that that he, um, he did without saying he was gonna teach you anything, but he would just do it and then you would learn the lesson. But with his magnetism came hangers on. The beer bench in front of the bike shop grew into a party scene. Here's Don McClung. Some afternoons, uh, there'd just be a, a crowd of people. This, you know, we'd have the high wheelers out and everybody's riding the high wheelers, people are crashing and, and uh, you know, it was a pretty amazing party scene there sometimes. <laughs> Between the ad hoc parties and the low sales, it wasn't long before the business came unraveled. And in 1995, Mike and Don McClung closed up shop for good and sold the building. Don stayed in Salida and continued to make custom bikes. But for Mike, bikes weren't enough anymore. He wanted to push his beliefs about efficiency, self-reliance, and simplicity all the way to the end of the fence. He decided to leave Salida and found some property just outside the small town of Sawatch in the remote San Luis Valley. Sawatch would have been about the last place in the world I would have wanted to move. Um, that's a strange culture down there. A lot of people are hiding out from something, you know, who knows what. Some of them are hiding out from themselves, I think. If you travel west from Salida for a few miles and then turn south, you'll head over Pancha Pass. 
From the top of the pass, the San Luis Valley opens like an alligator's jaws all the way down to the border of New Mexico. To the east, the jagged teeth of the snow-capped Sangre de Cristo Mountains. The softer, greener San Juan Mountains form the western jaw. The eastern side of the valley, along the Sangres, could be described as the more touristy, more hippie side. Between Highway 17 and the foothills, you'll find several natural hot springs, the Great Sand Dunes National Park, and the town of Crestone, home to more than a dozen religious retreats, including a Carmelite monastery, a Hindu ashram, and a Tibetan Buddhist stupa. Many visitors have reported seeing UFOs in the area, and there's an alien landing strip and observation tower. The valley west of Highway 17 and all the way to the San Juans is dotted with circular green potato fields fed in part by the headwaters of the Rio Grande, which winds its way through the valley into New Mexico. Mike bought a treeless 80 acres at the mouth of the valley to the north. It was just a few miles east of the tiny town of Sawatch, where he could see the whole valley spread out for miles. Sun rises, moon rises over, over the sangres, and um, just the quiet night sky, the stars, um, the antelope. This is Marianne Bavaria, Mike's girlfriend. They'd been together for several years when he moved to Sawatch, and she helped him pick out the land. When Mike first went down there, he did have a little, hardly even a tent. It was more like a bivy sack kind of a thing where he could sleep in it, but there wasn't much room. And he, he decided where he wanted to place his house at that time on, in the hillside. For many, one of the biggest appeals of buying property in Sawatch County is that there are no building codes. Mike ordered a couple of shed kits and stockpiled used windows. Then, in typical Mike Rust fashion, he converted the sheds into an elongated cabin backed up against Copper Butte, with windows facing south to soak up the sun in the winter. One of the things that struck people when he moved down to the valley was how basic his life was and how little he needed to be happy. But he fascinated everyone that came to visit him with just his simplicity and the, um, the bareness of what he was happy with. And uh, he gradually built that up to um, quite an impressive array of um, different structures. Okay, good morning. It's uh, Wednesday, January 8th. Here's Mike in a home uh, yeah, video giving a virtual morning. tour around it's his really home bright. to watch. It's uh, the solar shack. Uh, and uh, it's about 9 o'clock, big band radio sound just starts, pretty deluxe in such a surroundings. Oh, there's the cup of coffee, a little, kind of a good sized hobo stove, five gallon can just cut out, and then there's the camper inside the solar shack, and it's all just getting toasty warm, I'll have to go outside pretty soon because it'll be too warm in here. Mike was constantly tinkering with his place, adding makeshift creature comforts as he went. Okay, here we go. About 10.30 in the morning. We got all this stuff on a slider, so it's TV on this side and radio on this side and gets out of the way. And Seen to the outside bedroom window. Gravity feed water system, but hey, you know, all I need, I think five gallons gets me quite a long time out here. It's tough out here in the West. It's tough. It's tough. 
He also built a small runway that he called okay. the Sawatch Intergalactic Airport to fly his model airplanes. He'd long admired the Wright brothers for the kind of self-taught inventiveness and curiosity that led to their flight at Kitty Hawk in 1903. Oh, what do we got up here? Oh yeah, see every kind of airport terminal's got to have kind of airplanes hanging from the ceiling and all, you know? To earn money, Mike took odd jobs and made copper and brass roses that he sold at the Colorado Renaissance Festival every summer. Here's Marianne Bavaria. Mike was able to live on, on not much money at all. He did make the roses, um, the metal roses, and sold those to people. Um, but um, he just worked on his land and loved it and um, would go to the store about once a week and get groceries and he, he, he was happy out there on his own. He was living his dream, really. Mike was constantly building things that showed in the house that he lived in. Any rust. I mean, he took a, a side of a dirt area and dug into that and built his little abode. And I can't think of anyone else in the family that would want to live like that, but Kudos to Mike, he walked the walk and he talked the talk. But there were risks too. There were hungry bears for one thing, and Mike kept a pistol handy after a few run-ins. Then there was the sheer size of the valley, which meant access to healthcare, food, and emergency responders could be spotty. Lieutenant Mark Wirtz was an investigator with the Sawatch County Sheriff's Office for a decade. Sawatch County is a really huge area. Uh, it encompasses almost 4,000 square miles. And with that, you've only got a population of around 6,000. You've got people really spread out. Uh, it's a beautiful area. But with that also, uh, there was only eight of us. Former Deputy Nick Tolsma worked for the Sawatch County Sheriff's Department for four years. At any given time, I mean, there might be only one person doing coverage. Uh, because of this, uh, there's often times where I was covering the county just by myself and would have to respond to calls uh, often, you know, 30, 45 minutes of running lights and sirens uh, to respond to a call uh, by myself and hoping that, you know, backup could come uh, within even a half an hour would be lucky. For some calls, there'd be no radio coverage at all. Uh, so oftentimes you're not only dealing with someone by yourself, but uh, you don't have a way to communicate back uh, in case you do need help. So it, it, it makes it a little tricky patrolling there, and you really have to know how to deal with people, uh, treat them with respect, and, uh, and also be able to take care of yourself. For many residents of Sawatch County, the lack of police presence means being prepared to care for and protect yourself in any emergency situation. It also means many are hypervigilant about protecting their property. Citing Colorado's Make My Day law, which allows property owners to use deadly force to protect themselves inside their homes, Wirt says even the sheriff's department has to tread carefully. And there have been incidences in Swatch County where um, people have been shot at, including law enforcement, just for coming onto somebody's property, even when they had a legal right to do that. So in Swatch County, you got to be careful with that. Here's Jerry Mosier, a private investigator and longtime friend of Mike Rest's. It's still 1860 down there. That's, that's my description of the valley. Uh, 
Even a lot of the policemen live there because they don't like policemen and they don't like cities. Though Mike considered himself a peaceful person, he wasn't any more likely to call the sheriff than his neighbors. The feeling, general feeling in, in the San Luis Valley was that the sheriff couldn't really help in a lot of ways. And Mike was honestly the last person in the world to ever call on the sheriff for anything. This is Wish We Were Here. Stay with us. This episode of Wish We Were Here is supported by the Hub Bicycle Shop in Colorado Springs. The Hub strives to be a socially conscious company and believes the bicycle contributes to personal, societal, and environmental well-being. Check them out at thehubbicycleshops.com. Welcome back to Wish We Were Here. I'm Noel Black. And I'm Jake Brownell. If you're just joining us, we're telling the story of the life and disappearance of Mike Rust, one of the early pioneers of mountain biking who went missing from his home in Colorado's San Luis Valley in 2009. This episode of Wish We Were Here is an adaptation of the documentary film The Rider and the Wolf, produced by Grit and Thistle Film Company. Grit and Thistle creates documentaries about environmental and social causes in the American West. Most of the interviews in this episode are from the film and were provided to us by director Nathan Ward. The last time Mike Rust's girlfriend, Marianne Bavaria, saw Mike was on March 31st, 2009. He called to say he was coming into Salida and was just going to stop and he'd pick me up for lunch. And so he did that in his little car and he was broke, of course. So we went to Burger King and he got a couple dollar burgers and I had one too. And we just visited and um, then we checked out the new dollar store, which was just up the road. And we bought, I bought some garden seeds and he bought a few munchies and things to eat. And um, then he dropped me back off at home and that was the last I saw him. Mike drove back to the valley. He stopped to help a friend fix a bike, then he drove home. And then at seven o'clock, I got a phone call from Mike saying that um, several people had been in his house. Um, he saw tracks from, I think, about three dirt bikes. They had taken the gun that was in his camper. Um, so it was getting dark. He was sounding a little angry, frantic, and um, he was going to go back out and see if he could follow those bike tracks, dirt bike tracks, to see where they led. She tried to talk him out of it. I said, they have the gun. He said, well, somebody's got to teach these guys a lesson. And he said, I've got to go. And he hung up. Um, I was really scared for him. I was mad at him. Um, I had a lot of emotions going through me at that time. Um, Mike is also the most 
independent, self-sufficient person <laughs> I've ever known. And I, I didn't call anybody, um, but I did try to call him back several times that evening and, and was never able to get an answer. Marianne didn't sleep well that night. The next day, she drove over to check on Mike. And when she got to his place, she found his groceries still in the bags on the floor, one of his motorcycles knocked over and leaking gas, and his empty gun case on the table. So I, I knew he had not come back after um, chasing after them. Marianne called Mike's brother Paul, and Paul got in touch with their brother Marty. Marty threw his motorcycle into his truck and drove straight down to Mike's place. He arrived in the middle of the night and quickly surveyed the scene. Here, he recounts the story at a campfire on a windy evening in the valley. So I came inside and the cell phone was, was plugged in. It was sitting there. His wallet was sitting there. Um, and all the groceries were, that he'd just been to the store were sitting on the floor. You know, and it's like, it's like he was just here a second ago. He'll be right back. But he never came back. And so I, I went on through the rest of the house, and there was a. He left in such a hurry that he knocked down one of the motorcycles, and gas was leaking all over. And and you know, and Mike just wouldn't do anything like that normally. It was you could just tell something chaotic was going on. Marty jumped on his motorcycle and went looking for Mike. His headlamp and the lights of his motorcycle illuminated the valley night. And I went out, thinking maybe he was laying on the side of a trail or something, you know, and uh, searched until basically dawn. And then uh, my brother Paul came down that morning. And, uh, you know, we determined he was definitely missing and we couldn't, we couldn't figure what else might have happened. So that's when we called the police and started to turn into missing persons. In the days that followed, the sheriff's department organized a search with air support from the military. There was no sign of Mike or the motorcycle he'd been riding. Neighbors in the valley pitched in with whatever equipment or expertise they could lend. At first, the sheriff's department treated Mike's disappearance as a missing persons case, and they entertained various explanations. Here's investigator Mark Wirtz. A couple different theories went through my mind, um, and I started working towards those theories uh, to see what we could come up with. The first being is that uh, he had gone out and was just because of his personality and from what the family was telling me that he enjoyed uh, being on his own and, and doing things that maybe he didn't find anything and decided just to leave for a little while and get away and do whatever. Uh, so that was one of my theories. The second theory was is that perhaps he had gone off after somebody or, and become involved in a motorcycle accident and needed help somewhere. So we, we were kind of going with that one uh, pretty hard and heavy. And then in the back of my mind too was is that there were suspicious circumstances that we needed to be looking at also. For five days, the sheriff, family, friends, and neighbors searched for Mike, but turned up nothing. Then on the fifth day, they found their first lead. 
the sheriff's office area had in the past used uh, search and rescue dogs and had been somewhat successful with them. Uh, so we did ask them to uh, um, send out some dogs to assist us, and, and they did do that. One of the dog teams um, came up with a uh, area that they found uh, somewhat suspicious, and they contacted the sheriff, and uh, we found uh, a vest was found, and then also some blood was found on that vest and in that area around that vest. They tested the blood and determined it was Mike's. There were also multiple sets of footprints and a broken-off piece of Mike's pistol handle. It was clear that he'd been in some kind of altercation with the people he'd gone after. It now seemed likely that he'd been severely injured, if not killed. We had stepped things up a notch at that point. Things were more serious than what, you know, what it could have been at first. Um, and at that time also, we decided that it was going to be really important that we find that motorcycle. Six weeks passed before the motorcycle finally turned up in a canyon on the far side of the valley. After a thorough search of the area and no sign of Mike, it was presumed that the bike had been dumped. There were no other clues. Shortly after they found the motorcycle, the trail went cold. There were no prints on the bike and nothing at the scene that might help identify the culprits. And Mike's body was nowhere to be found. Months had passed since Mike went missing. He could be anywhere. Here's Deputy Sheriff Nick Tolzma again. Yeah, it's definitely a needle in a haystack when it comes to not only just Swatch County, but, you know, did the killer drive him out of the county? Did they drive him across the country? Yeah, it's hard to say. The theory of what happened the day Mike disappeared had been pieced together from his last phone call and what little evidence was left at the scene. At least two individuals had gone onto Mike's property. They entered his home and took his 22 caliber pistol. After Mike caught up with them, there was an altercation. Mike was likely pistol-whipped with the handle of his own gun. He was severely injured, if not killed at the scene. Beyond that, nothing was certain. Eventually, the sheriff's department put the case on the back burner. There were no more leads, and they had to divert their limited resources to other crimes. Mike's family and friends were left to continue the search on their own. The family put up a reward for information related to Mike's disappearance. They hired private investigators, and they spent days, weeks, and months on end looking for signs of Mike in the valley. Here's Mike's sister, Annie. We looked everywhere, the, every direction that we thought they might have gone. We looked in every crevice, every water tower. There were, there were places that we thought that would be a good place to hide a body, but we couldn't go there because of restrictions on private property. They tacked up missing posters around the valley. They tried to put themselves in the minds of Mike's killers. They hired a tracker who claimed to own a cadaver-sniffing horse. They even followed up on tips from psychics. Anything they could think of to knock loose a lead. Here's Mike's brother, Carl. We were getting information from psychics from a lot of parts of the country, as a matter of fact. Um, and some of them were, uh, I, I see him in this location. and or uh, he's, he's buried over here, or you will find his body in, in, in this place. Between Marty and I, we've always followed up on these psychic um, information. We kind of feel like, well, we've got nothing to lose. It's, it's a little bit of time off. We go searching and looking around, and who knows, maybe we'll stumble onto something or, or not. But um, it's just interesting that what goes through your head. Part of you says, why in the heck 
Why am I chasing after this? This is a ghost. Why, why would I even waste time? There's no evidence that there's something really here. But the other part of you continues to grasp at something to, to hold on to, to, to find something that would help resolve, you know, where, where Mike was put. After years of searching, the family presumed that Mike was likely dead. Leaving aside the question of who killed him and how exactly he died, it was his whereabouts that troubled them most. It was especially hard on Mike's mother, who had already lost two of her sons in the years before Mike's disappearance. Uh, we'd already gone through two brothers dying. Uh, Chris died from cancer and Joe committed suicide. So here it was five, after, five years after Joe's death that Here's another son that's, that's missing. That's got to be hard on any mother's heart. Um, it was for all of us, but I think for a mother it's even worse. And for all the energy that the Russ family was putting into the search for Mike's body, the odds were against them. Mike's friend, the investigator Jerry Mosier, who the family had hired to help in the search, believed a tip from somebody involved was probably their best bet. It was not planned. Uh, it was pretty spontaneous. It grew out of a confrontation, a situation that shouldn't have happened. You got two or more people there and like I say even you know even when uh, when dogs get into the farmer's sheep there'll be one or two of them that don't want to be there and they'll turn tail and run and hoping the other guys don't call them chicken that kind of thing and but it got out of hand it happened uh, it hasn't been it's remained quiet among those people probably because of tight family relationships or fear but eventually the reasons for silence will, uh, will loosen up. Somebody will die, get a divorce, become angry, get drunk, brag even. People who do that want to confess to somebody. There was little anyone could do at that point other than keep searching and hope that something would turn up or that someone would come forward with a clue. After almost seven years of silence, an anonymous tip came into the Sawatch County Sheriff's Department this past January. The caller pointed them to a specific spot on private property just a few miles east of Mike's home. The body discovered there hasn't yet been positively identified as Mike Rust, and the family hasn't been able to locate dental records. The Colorado Bureau of Investigation has ordered a DNA test of the remains, but Marty and his siblings feel confident it's their brother. Supposedly, a prized belt buckle that Mike frequently wore turned up with the body. Now, I haven't seen any pictures of this, but I am aware of a, of a unique belt buckle that was presented to my brother by the Mountain Bike Hall of Fame. It very well could be to turn out to be that belt buckle, which would be about as positive ID as a dental record, actually. For the new Sawatch County Sheriff, Dan Warwick, a positive ID of the body will mean they can reopen Mike's case as a homicide investigation. Um, you know, it, it just completes a little bit more of the puzzle for us where we can actually head in a, in a particular direction instead of checking everything and everyone and and being speculative about where and what occurred we can pretty well train our thoughts in one direction no matter how much marty russ would like to see the people who killed his brother brought to justice he says 
The most important thing by far is knowing what happened to him. The very first um, thought is, what a relief this is going to be to, uh, you know, after s almost seven years of um, basically every moment that you're awake, you every thought you have goes through this sort of cloud that you have in your head that it just affects every thought that you have, that it never leaves my head that, that my brother's missing and I don't know what happened to him. So the thought that we may have found him is a huge relief in one uh, aspect to me personally, is that I can now go on a hike or walk without feeling like I'm having to look over, over every stone and under every log, you know, for my brother. So it's a huge relief in that respect. I'm looking forward to sleeping good again. Whatever the results of the DNA test, Mike's loss will continue to be felt by those who loved him. Here's Mike's longtime girlfriend, Marianne Bavaria. Going through this experience of losing Mike has been the most difficult thing I've ever gone through. To, to lose a friend in the, well, prime of life, so giving, so generous, finally doing what he dreamt about, living on his own land. It was just, it's heartbreaking. Mike's friend, Wade Veazey. Oh, I just, I miss Mike's energy the most. I mean, that was, uh, and his spirit, uh, I mean, Mike could make you feel lazy. Uh, he, he was always getting after it. He was always a uh, real youthful, bubbly personality. It just isn't right. For just a character that big to just poof, be gone, is, it's hard to live with. It's, uh, yeah, it just doesn't, it doesn't feel right. Brian Gravestock. I think that Mike's um, idealism and um, the way that he connected all the dots, um, that he always had um, this fine sense of judgment about um, everything. It didn't stop him from um, loving people. It didn't stop him from really treasuring uh, people. He was different. He was a gentleman. I'm into of the top tier type gentleman. Don Cook, Mike's friend and the former director of the Mountain Bike Hall of Fame. So I'm left with memories and I'm left, I'm left with loss and so is so is a lot of Colorado because Mike was, was a big influence in um, many people's lives in many different sections of the state. And uh, uh, with no explanation of, of how or where he is, it, I think it leaves a bad lump in almost all those friends' throats as it does with mine. And, uh, that sadness will never go away. And my desire to want to see him again and talk to him again and ride with him will never go away. You know, true friend. If any good has come from the mystery surrounding Mike's untimely death, it's that his contribution to the sport of mountain biking is now beginning to be recognized. As Mike was fond of saying, the bicycle has a great past ahead of it. And that past now includes Mike Rust. And there's camper inside the building. Minimal, but functional. Give you a good case of cabin fever. 
the great outdoors is what really works around here. So, uh, thanks for stopping by. Thanks for taking such good care of me when I was at your house. And I uh, hope you can come out here someday and help me move some rocks. We got a little dirt to move. Maybe fly my ultralight out of here someday. So, good evening for now. Uh, I got to get back to happy hour. Uh, you're on your own. Wish We Were Here is a production of KRCC in Colorado Springs. This episode was produced in collaboration with Grit and Thistle Film Company, whose documentary, The Rider and the Wolf, tells the story of Mike Rust. Most of the interviews in this episode were conducted by Grit and Thistle Film Company and were used with permission from filmmaker Nathan Ward. Many thanks to Nathan for his help with this episode. To find out about or request a screening of The Rider and the Wolf near you, head over to gritandthistle.com. Thanks to our interns Amy Ron and Abigail Sensky and to our production assistant Amelia Whitmer. Thanks also to general manager Tammy Turwelp and program director Jeff Beery. Music in this episode was produced by Jake Brownell. For more episodes of Wish We Were Here, you can look us up online at krcc.org or find us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and PRX. For KRCC and Wish We Were Here, I'm Noel Black. And I'm Jake Brownell.